Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. So, huge welcome today to our super angel investor, Peter Cowley. Oh, that's very unfair. <laughs> Thank you very much, Faye and James. It's our pleasure. So, as your own Twitter account states, you're an entrepreneur, tech angel, in brackets, 76 investments, 18 exits, 19 failures, and we're going to come back to that, dad and technologist. And we can add to that now, you're also a newlywed. So, yes. t- tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, um, I actually got married again about three weeks ago here in Cambridge. Met Lise during lockdown, actually. We had what she calls corona dates, where we were walking two metres apart, which allowed us to get to know each other very well before <laughs> anything more happened. So, yes, it was great. It was great to do that. And uh, particularly, as, as you'll hear later, I've got cancer, and therefore she's married somebody with late-stage cancer. Congratulations on your wedding, Peter. And we really do appreciate you coming on and talking about some of those other more personal elements too. Well, yeah, certainly for the audience that aren't in Cambridge and might not know you, Peter, or come across your story, not so much a warning, but I think this conversation is going to cover some quite personal issues, which might surprise listeners that don't have that kind of relationship with you um, and are not familiar with your recent challenges. So to reassure everyone, we're not being overly direct with the questions and intrusive. You've actually taken a very open and transparent approach to these challenges, which I think is obviously very admirable. Let's start with you and your personal health. You've obviously had the cancer diagnosis that you've just referred to. You've been going through treatment and you've got some more recent updates. Can you just talk us through what's happening with you and why you've chosen to be so open about it? Yes, so I'm 67 years old now, at the age of 65, cancer was diagnosed. The reason I'm being open about it is the reason other people are as well. It's it's to get it out into the open, share the information, share the experiences, and hopefully help others in the same way I did with the Investor Investor, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. So I'm pretty open anyway about all kinds of things, something even more serious we'll talk about in a moment. When I got the cancer was discovered, and it was very late stage when it was discovered, it's actually a a never smoke a lung cancer. So those people, about one in six of us who get lung cancer have never smoked. And almost always it's very late stage because we're generally quite fit and we're not coughing up or anything like that. So it took me about nine months before I get my head around how open to be about it. It was just a private page on my blog, on the website, etc. And then I decided to be open to try and help others. So I've set up a YouTube channel called Project Cancer been on the drug for the last 18 months, which has worked extremely well, designed here in Cambridge, actually, by AstraZeneca, their best-selling drug, as it turns out, because there's plenty of us with this particular mutation. But it's, it went wrong in the last three, two or three months. So, in fact, I've got a PET scan, which is a type of CT scan this afternoon, and uh, we'll wait and see. So it's actually mutated, which means the drug's no longer working, hopefully only in one location. Has being so open about that kind of journey you've been on a key part of your coping mechanism as well in terms of rationalising the situation that you face? That's a really good question and something I'm actually working through at the moment because I'm actually in the process of writing another book which will be autobiographical but hopefully will help others be inspirational and show how I've coped with various crises, some of which you two probably don't know, like I'm a recovering alcoholic. I haven't had a drink for 23 and a half years but I'm still a recovering alcoholic. So various things have happened in my life that I've got through and ended up where I am. And I'm sure some of these real crises have helped in developing my character and my wish to help others. Is it a commercially available drug or was it a trial? 
No, no, it's not a trial. It was a trial, but it was introduced in the UK about three years ago, back to the States about eight years ago. It's called Tagriso or Ozimertinib. It's the best-selling drug AZ has at the moment. You talked about the YouTube channel and Project Cancer. What are your intentions with that? What do you want to do with that? I want to help others in the same way. Quite a lot of them are bowel babies we know who tragically died last year. Uh, there's a number of people who are being much more open about their, uh, their journeys to help others. So on there is some of my history. There's also how I've coped with telling others, how I've coped with planning and prioritisation, how I've coped with working with the NHS. I've got to help as much as I can, help them in order for them to help treat me to extend my life, but also my quality of living. That matters a lot to me. What kind of reaction have you had to this? I mean, I'm sure cancer has affected many of the people listening to this, either directly or indirectly. Uh, it certainly has in my family. And I've got to be honest, I'm not very good about talking about those kinds of things. So what, what kind of reaction have you had to it? I haven't done much marketing yet. So there's only about 60 or 70 subscribers, hopefully a few more after this. The ones I've got have been very positive, the feedback I've got from that. And it's led me to, for instance, interview Billy Boyle. His work's just across the road here. Uh, and others. And once it's spread further, I hope it will help others. I mean, it's a combination of information and also stories. I mean, I, I did a podcast with my oncologist, for instance. So. People can find this predominantly on YouTube? Yes, it's called Project Hyphen Cancer. And if you look for Project Cancer, there is actually another Project Cancer on YouTube. I haven't got a monopoly there. But if you use my surname in this search as well, Cowley, C-O-W-L-E-Y, you will find it. Of course, cancer hasn't been the only devastating blow that you've dealt with lately. Last October, your youngest son, Alan, um, took his own life, age 33. You've since gone on to raise, I believe, over £60,000 for a variety of charities. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing there and the importance you're putting on that? Yes, thank you. Um, so yes, it, obviously with any suicide, it's very sudden. I know much more about suicide than I thank goodness I knew before he died in October last year. So the immediate reaction was to do something, of course. I mean, it's all part of the grieving process and avoidance and all the other things that psychologists will tell you. And I just put a, a web page up raising money and it's possible that some of the listeners will have, will have contributed to that. I didn't know where to put the money at the time because I really knew so little about suicide. So it was actually a GoFundMe page and then it's been distributed to several. And there are three areas that I'm continuing to help in this sector. And I haven't really worked out how much this is to help me and how much it is to help others, but I'm sure it's helping others at the moment. So the Centre 33, which is a mental health charity for youngsters here in Cambridge and Peterborough and Wisbeach and Cambridgeshire, and we've raised about £30,000 for them. It's in the public domain that they're looking at moving premises and possibly to Mill Road, so I'm helping them with that. Then there's an organisation, the largest young person suicide charity in the UK. It's called Papyrus, um, which is quite well known because of the Three Dads Walking, which some people will have heard of. And Andy's actually on the board of, the, um, of that charity. So about half the money went to that. And I'm involved with a committee of the, of the trustee board. Um, and then the other one, which I just happened to find because I mentioned it to my physiotherapist and her sister-in-law was head of marketing for the International Association of Suicide Prevention. Well, that's a global body, which is not helping people directly in terms of counselling. It's trying to make policy changes. And I've spent a lot of my life involved in, at government level and European government as well, European Union, when I was president of a uh, European trade body to help with that. So I'm actually working with all these three levels. People do say that if you're going to give charitable stuff, you should think, give a pot for local, pot for national and pot for international. And I'm just sort of following that. That's a great legacy. And uh, also we, we appreciate you sharing that. 
Um, and hopefully, you know, it will be uh, of use to people listening and, and hopefully they'll get involved in supporting directly as well. Yeah, I mean, the important thing is it, it's, it's much worse than cancer in terms of stigma. It's, you know, and, and it affects, as, as you might know, three times more young men than young women kill themselves um, because they don't talk as much, they use violent methods. Anything that can do to reduce this stigma has got to be worth doing. Thank you again for that. Um, so now let's move the conversation on to talk about you as a business person. So you're known as an angel investor, not just here in Cambridge, but actually internationally and globally. But actually, you've had a longer career, I, I expect, as, a, as an entrepreneur. Um, so, so tell us, let's go right back to the start. You know, where did your inspiration come from? What were some of the, the businesses that you started and got involved in? That is a long story. <laughs> I'll shorten it. Um, I was very geeky at school and ended up with some good A-levels, so I ended up here at Cambridge University doing engineering and computer science. But before I came here, I went and lived with my aunt in Sydney in Australia, and I worked for this guy who had a single shop, and he turned out he's the most famous entrepreneur and explorer in Australia, a bit like Richard Branson is over here, a guy called Dick Smith for any people who've ever uh, lived in Australia. And I just happened to work for him. And, and some of what his enthusiasm and his craziness, and not that, that crazy, hopefully, uh, rubbed off on me. So when I came, came up to Cambridge, I actually um, did a little bit and bought a traveling discotheque off some, a couple of veterinary students from um, one of the colleges and then ran that for a year. Joined a company, uh, a software company, which was growing rapidly. And it, it just sort of outgrew what I wanted to do. And I had the opportunity to move out to Germany to join a small company there, so I did that. That was sold and I formed my first proper company back in 1981, a tech company. My tag, if it's short number of words, is serial entrepreneur and parallel angel investor. So I, certainly I'm still entrepreneurial. I still got a tech business. I've got the publishing business with the two books and hopefully a third one. And you know, that those entrepreneurial set, one of them is now 40 years old this year, CamData. It's mainly been tech and property, and, and it's the property development and building houses up in Stamford, in just north of Cambridgeshire, just north of Peterborough, which actually made the money to allow me to start angel investing. And I luckily got into the Cambridge Angels, which I'm sure has been mentioned on the programme before, and then became chair of that in time, and learnt everything I knew from the other angels, which I'm now giving back. And just, just jumping back to CamData, I mean, that must have been, you know, like a, a whole baptism of fire over 40 years. Can you do a baptism of fire over 40 years? Who knows? Who knows? Wrong, wrong thing there. But hey, never mind. We won't cuss it. It is what it is. Um, you know, that in itself was a real roller coaster of a journey, wasn't it? Yes, it's if anybody's ever read the book or wants to read the book, I give it at the end of the first chapter. It was a, in, in a very briefly, it grew up to about 30 people. Then in the recession, which I don't know whether you two remember, the 89, 90, 91 one, you, you probably weren't in business at that point. It was really tough, that recession, and we went bust, and then I resurrected it, and then I sold it to somebody, and then I bought them back, bought it back off them, and then I bought them, and I bought our biggest competitor. So it's been... But it's a lifestyle business. It's just, it's like many, many businesses around here. It provides an income. As it turns out, it's a bit of a cash cow, so I don't have to put much time in, but that's just, I put a lot of time and effort in over the years. What I've learned from that journey has been really helpful for all the various people I mentor, either my own portfolio or anybody else, um, because I've seen the ups and the downs, you know. 
many angels generally have just seen the ups. They, you know, they invest or get involved in something. So when they're entrepreneurial, they build it and they, and they sell the business. They've always got ups and downs on the way, but I've had some pretty serious downs on, on my business life. So, so what was the trigger then that made you decide, rather than just sit back and reap the benefits of all of that success, why did you want to start writing checks to other people? You know, what was the what was the trigger of wanting to become an angel in the first place? And maybe once you've given us that response, I'll ask you: Would you advise anyone to do it themselves? And you know, what would your advice be to them? I stumbled into it sort of by mistake. I was I'd set up a mentoring scheme for people who'd done my. A course here at Cambridge Computer Science and I was just I, I was mentoring lots of people and one of them a guy called Martin Kleppman actually who is now an academic here at the university uh, he wanted a bit of money to start something up and uh, we sold that to Redgate yeah. and because of that uh, it gave me the opportunity to join the Cambridge Angels because I had an exit and, right. and I knew a couple of Cambridge Angels pretty well yeah. yeah. So that's how I got into it. But I, the reason I enjoy it so much more is because I regard this as being like a grandparent, which I'm not yet, where you can hand back the baby to the parents. Yeah. So you're not running the baby being the business and all the hassle and everything and employing people. And then the, the parent, in this case, being the entrepreneurial team, probably the CEO. Yeah. And I can just pop in and out when there's a crisis or where, when it needs money, <laughs> when the child needs money, you know, <laughs> bank of dad type thing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, et cetera people listening to this that maybe have been successful entrepreneurs or have accumulated some wealth that they were looking to do something more interesting with and put it in a bank account, what would your advice to them be? Ooh, I think very carefully about it because it's extremely risky. There are lots of data out there which says really you've got to invest in 20 to 25 companies to make sure you've got the, the numbers going to work statistically. If you have less than 10 investments you've actually got a good chance of losing all your money, not just some of it. If you get above about 25, you've got a very good chance of getting your money back, not necessarily having a return. And it follows the power law. So it, you'll get the great results from one or two exits. So if you only have three or four or five, the chances are very low. So yeah. do think carefully about it. Of course, crowdfunding's around. Someone can dabble in that by just putting 10 or 20 pounds, but you're not going to get much return. You might get a 3x out of 20 pounds, which is 60 pounds. If you're going to get a, a return which is something financially good, you've really got to put a decent amount in. Having said that, I never did it for the money. I did it for spending time with the entrepreneurs and helping them. And I've often said that if I got all my money back plus a pound or a euro or a dollar, I'd be really happy with the, the life doing it. As it turns out, with a bit of luck and a bit of whatever, I've, I've, it's also been financially successful for me. As it, It's all on my website, this, the, all the stats. Yeah, we'll yeah, definitely come on to the yeah. investing investor yeah. stuff. One more supplementary, if I make Faye, before you come back in. How do you, as a new angel then, or as an as a inexperienced angel, how do you build up your credibility? You know, how do you build your brand as a as a as an investor to be taken seriously? Yeah, not many angels do build brands. Actually, there's no need to build a brand as long as you can find the deal somewhere. And the best way to find deals is really to belong to an angel group of some sort, even if it's a sort of remote one where everything's you're dialing in at virtual. As it turns out, in Cambridge, we have a very good angel group, the Cambridge Angels, yeah. which is probably per capita the most um, not necessarily the most successful. It's difficult to work that out, but certainly in terms of investment, most investment per head of anywhere in Europe. So it's mixing with others that have been doing it before. Like anything, you're learning from the others. But as long as you belong to a group somewhere yeah. where the, the deals will come in and they're somehow filtered by people who you know, have probably got a better idea of what they're looking for while you learn. 
going back to the building the brand um, piece, did you find it was, is, oh, is it a bit of a double-edged sword that, you know, you built the brand and therefore people come to you so you don't have the likes of Cambridge Angels filtering out? You're having to do all of that as well? Good question. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, I used to get about 14, 1500 business plans a year coming in and that's an awful lot of stuff to wade through. Belonging to Cambridge Angels, I'd pass those straight to the group and then the group would work out whether anybody was interested in it. I do have a set of criteria on my website which says don't send anything unless it fits in with my criteria and all angels will build up criteria. Um, and actually it's quite useful to look at that just to see if you're going for investment anywhere because it, not necessarily, you won't want it for me and I don't invest any longer. I get other people to do it. Um, so, and I want to come back to some of those um, tips that you you go through. But let's talk about some of these investments that you've made. So, as I said at the top, you know, seventy six investments, eighteen exits, nineteen failures. Can we talk about a few of them? Yeah, of course, because they're actually on my website, and I've I've even got the reasons why I think they've failed on my website as well. Do you want to name them, or do you want me to name them, or which ones yeah, do, you, well, do you want to talk? The about? Two biggies, uh, which are uh, James and James, which I put some money in. This is a Cambridge company uh, that's in set up a fulfilment business. In fact, they didn't set up a fulfilment business; they set up a warehouse management system, which is the software that a fulfilment business uses. But they built a little warehouse with two people in it down in Foxton just to try the software before they sold it on because you've got to try it somehow. You can't sell it on straight away to anybody. And that sort of worked quite well. So we then moved to Sawston and then moved to Northampton and then they've moved again. And so it actually grew not as a tech business but as a service business, which is not something I would normally invest in. I joined the board because they liked that I could help. We sort of interviewed each other and I said, I'm not going to help unless you let me buy some shares. So I bought some shares, not very much. I mean, it was a few thousand pounds, but a hundred times a few thousand pounds is still a reasonable amount of money, as you can imagine. So that, that grew very well. And that was six years. The other biggie that I had was a um, company that was, you know, John Bradford, obviously, yes. but Springboard, when they, he moved down from uh, the Northeast, yeah. uh, which was based at the Hauser Forum, uh, idea space, um, that came out of that very first cohort there. And I liked what he was doing and I liked the guy or the, the two of them. And so I led the investment rounds there and we sold that to a big American company. My 60th birthday, all those entrepreneurs came to my Kaylee. <laughs> you know, I have built up friendships with these these people over the years. I went Martin Kleckman, I went to his wedding, for instance, that very first investment. Now I've got lots of failures, of course. I think entrepreneurs learn so much more from why things fail. And they generally fail because the investment dries up before they get to the point where they're not reliant on the investors. And not being reliant on the investors means having a business that's actually generating enough profit that it's, it's got to break even. So if your company's got to the point where it's still not breaking even and the, it's lost the faith of its investors, where's it going to go? You can't get bank debt at that point. You've got to either shrink the company small enough that whatever sales you are making funds the business or you've got to sell it. And, and selling in, in a fire sale, of course, is not the way to sell any business you want to sell over a period of time to get the best result. So that's why they fail. And that's true of almost all my failures. So it's all down to cash flow. Well, in the end, yes, you yeah. can't. Yeah, as I said at that thing where you were recently at the SkyTech or SciTech Awards, it was cash is king. What's it? Revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, sanity. cash is king. It's Absolutely. all down to cash. So some of the investments you've made, you've talked about property, you've talked about some of the technology businesses that you've been in. Which have been the most fulfilling for you? 
the ones where I've helped the entrepreneurial team and others in a way that's made a difference and where they recognize that difference. One of my rules for investing is that the entrepreneurial team or entrepreneurs must listen. So if they don't listen during the due diligence process before one invests, then I wouldn't invest. And by listening, I don't mean listening to me necessarily. I mean listening to the market, listening to what the competitors might be doing, etc. So they, they have to be really focused, but at the same time, they've got to be ready to pivot at some point based on information coming in. Of course, that doesn't happen in, during the due diligence, or very rarely. It'll happen later where something's not working, they have to move in a different direction. And so if they've listened there, they've obviously got my investment at that point. They might not listen later, but that's rare, actually. It seems to be a character trait, the ability to listen and learn. And then if they've, if we work together well as a team with me as a non-exec, only coming in a few hours a month, and that journey's worked well and the company's been successful, whatever ups and downs it's gone through, then that I regard as being a really positive outcome for me and the ones I enjoy and therefore... And then, actually, as I said earlier on, the money output doesn't really matter. I don't want them to fail because... For entrepreneurs to fail, it's so painful, as, as I'm sure you've, I don't know if you've had anybody on the program yet who's failed, but that's where the mental health issues that are rather prevalent in our industry hit even harder uh, during a failure. Mm. So in your experience, when is the right time for the team to start thinking about like an exit strategy? Should that be, should they have a, an end goal in mind right from day one? Or does mm. that... Does that kind of develop as the company matures? Are there certain kind of thresholds they need to cross? So, uh, first of all, I, I disagree with other angels. I think there should be an exit slide there on day one. So I think it should be at least in the minds of the entrepreneurs, even from day one. They do say a venture-backed business is for sale the moment the money goes in because that's for our viewpoint. And obviously, not the entrepreneurs might have a different view about how long they want to continue with the business. Other people say, no, it shouldn't be at all. You should just wait and see. Because we want to get out. That's the difference between if most of the companies are not fund funded maybe by bank debt or by personal savings of the founders. And there isn't the pressure then to grow in the same way. And we, unfortunately, this is one of the negative sides of taking investor. You'll, investors. You'll get positive side in terms of help and connection to future money, but you'll get negative in that we're pushing hard for, for growth. And that yeah. growth can cause companies to fail because you're trying to grow too hard and they just run out of cash and we won't put any more money in. But the actual time of the exit is really difficult to know. I mean, if you've got a business that's generating, like the James and James fulfillment, that was generating significant EBITDA, significant net profit. And net profit is an easy exit because it's usually a multiple between four at the very minimum, and you might get 12 or 13 or 14 times the annual profit. Yeah. And that had an annual profit over £2 million, so it was quite easy to go out to a range of private equity houses and say, please bid on this. And we actually chose one, not that there was the highest bidder but the one that the two founders wanted to work with if it's not and most cambridge companies of course some haven't even raised an invoice before they exit never mind even what earth's profit then it's a different matter altogether and then what you've got to sell there is on on the future dream which of course we're investing on future dream anyway because they've got nothing to prove at that point no raw figures no no sales or, or profit the team itself and any intellectual property that's been generated or the intellectual property that has been generated, sorry, over time, whether that's patented or copyrighted or just know-how. Timing is so difficult, and you get quite strong discrepancies between what people want. I mean, there's an exit, I can't tell you what it is, but <laughs> in Cambridge last year where there was definitely a, 
a disagreement about between the founder or founders and some of the investors about whether they should exit or not. My view is always it's a founder's business. You know, we've helped them grow, but it's still their business. Assuming they're still there and they haven't been kicked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. let them make the decision whether to exit or not. But the honesty there of like, uh, you know, the pressure that taking investment brings, I think is refreshing. And, you know, I guess as a, an experienced entrepreneur, you can be open, you know, from that perspective and give the founders the kind of true picture. I mean, we've had a couple of companies on here that have bootstrapped and haven't raised money, which is interesting. John from Orcus. John, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, she mentioned my name, I seem to remember because yeah. of something I said. Yeah, I mean, and I remember, I can't remember where I saw you speak, but I've seen you speak a number of times. I think you used a line, something along the lines of an investor is an employee you can't fire. Something like that, right? John, John is, yeah, keen to say that, exactly. It's slightly wrong because it's not an employee in that the relationship isn't sure. employment, you're not paying them to do no, something. No, no, no. It's a bond. I, yeah. Well, I use it a different way, actually, usually. Uh, I have used it that way, obviously. It's it's like a, a marriage contract that you can't break. Right. So it's actually easier to get divorced, yeah. which unfortunately I have. Got married again. I didn't get married for the first time at 67. <laughs> uh, than it is to break the investor-investee bond. Yeah. In some cases, entrepreneurs actually shut businesses down because yeah. they just can't cope with the investors or one, usually one investor they've got. Yeah. We touched on failure and there's always that kind of, I guess, accusation that Europeans and, and the UK doesn't deal with failure in the same way as the US does. Is it also a trope or do you think there's some kind of truth in the amount of patience in capital with angels in Europe and UK versus the US? Two things there. One is there is definitely a difference in character and mentality between the US and Europe, but there's a huge difference between the UK, say, and Germany. My first business, I spent five years in Germany. Failing in Germany is is still, even this is 40 years ago, still much worse than failing in the UK. We, we are accepting failure as not necessarily being as negative as it used to be. And in fact, one of my rules on my website is I'd rather invest in a, uh, an entrepreneur who's failed before than one that hasn't tried before. Oh. You know, as long as they're open and honest about why it failed and don't just blame others because yeah. the chance are some of it is there. <laughs> they should blame themselves for something if, if blame's the right term to use. Secondly, you're right. Availability of capital is, is considerably less here, particularly later stage. You know, you saw the announcement about the 5% from some pension funds. I think it's a good idea in principle, but, you know, pension funds are supposed to be protecting yeah. pensions. So there will definitely be people who are against the concept there, but there is, there is a shortage of capital. One of the issues is, of course, that the exits tend to be bigger in the States because they've got a bigger market. That's why we exit early to some extent. My view, again, is that Cambridge is a great startup city. I, mean, I don't know if you know, but Israel class itself as a startup nation. And we just, we build the business. And I think we've got to accept that some of them, or quite a few of them, will exit earlier than we'd like. More importantly, there isn't the market, local market. We've got to be selling into a bigger market, which obviously is states speak the same language. Europe's difficult, multiple languages, multiple psychologies, multiple tax systems, everything else. China could have been, but at the moment, the geopolitical situation is difficult. India's a really difficult market to get into. At the moment, for Europeans, and certainly for the UK specifically, America is where you're going to go to, probably. And if you're going to get there, the best way in, unfortunately, in many cases, is to exit to a company at that point. Yeah, interesting. It's a fascinating conversation. And I think that anyone listening is going to really get that feel that you're so generous with the advice and information that, that you give. We've got the Invested Investor book, Founder to Founder, the podcast, the website. You know, you're completely open with all of this information, which is, is brilliant. So I want to ask you if you can condense it down to 
what would you say are the three attributes you need to succeed? Oh, my goodness. You definitely need a dose of luck. That's not really what you wanted to hear. The luck isn't necessarily knowing the right person, and hopefully it's not that, you know, it's the, the white males that will continue to get the investment, etc. <laughs> no, it's, it's generally to do with timing. Let's take the timing part of that out. So Abcam's a great example. Abcam here at Cambridge Company has done very well. Um, I've interviewed Jonathan and, and David and others in, in, who've been involved with this. Basically, it was a mail-order service of buying in other things at the time. Nowadays, it's much more than that. You know, it was the timing was right. Late 90s was the right time to do it. You couldn't even have done it five years later, that sort of thing. Somebody else would have done that. Like Amazon, you know, selling books online. It's a much bigger business than that now, but that's how it started. So luck and timing. Um, being able to follow the information that's fed you. This go back to the listening. So being always aware that another company could overtake you. Be very curious and learn and, as it says on my third chapter here, have strong opinions weekly held. You need to understand that you want to go in a certain direction with the company. You must be willing to accept information from others and then change your mind about something. And the third point is create a good culture in the business that you're building. So assuming you, it isn't just a one-man band or one-woman band, so because in the end you're going to have to recruit people to grow a business and you must have the right culture there so that an organisation with good culture is always going to be more successful. The second one I, I do particularly like, because I think especially in the areas of tech, you get very tunnel visioned, you get very, very focused on what that one output is. But actually if you're not looking at what else is going on around you, then, then you do run the risk of, of bumping into a few issues. Um, but thank, thank you for playing that and coming up with the three answers. Sorry, James, no, no, it's all good. James knows I randomly ask questions like every so often. You like three lists of so. things, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like I catch, I catchy things that for sure. Previous yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. That's right. Warning to everyone else. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I think you know anyone listening, uh, you know, won't be necessarily surprised in terms of like the, the the richness of experience you've got, how much you're giving back to the community, but. Um, recently, all of this has been recognised with a with a couple of awards, um, uh, and I know you've had multiple awards previously as well. But uh, just recently, you've had the Lifetime Achievement Award at the SciTech Awards back in May, and you've also received an honorary doctorate from Anglia Ruskin University here in the city. So, um, congratulations! Thank you. What do those um, accolades mean to you? And um, you know, when you embarked on this journey, did you ever think you'd be getting this kind of recognition? Of course not. No. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, my father was a dental surgeon, so, you know, he studied and then he worked and then he retired and he had 26 years before he died. I've just wandered through life grasping opportunities. Building Martlet, for instance, the VC that span out to Marshalls a couple of years ago, that was just an opportunity sitting next to somebody at a dinner. The fact I got Angel of the Year was because I happened to be talking to somebody who then wants uh, Tim Mills. You probably don't know Tim Mills, but he runs the Angel Co-Fund. And so he I'm on the investment committee there and he put me forward for that. So I spend a lot of the time just sort of wandering around, wondering what I'm doing. And I've had this wonderful life coach, Katie Tun. So you probably don't know who was. Yeah. You do know Katie, yeah, uh, who's helped me a lot of trying to work out where I'm going with whatever brand I'm creating. I didn't enter myself for any of these. This was just somebody decided I was the right person to give it to. And it's just a result of me loving what I do and being very passionate about giving back to the community, as you mentioned earlier, Faye. 
it's recognition of the fact I put a lot of effort into things, but I'm not doing it because I want the recognition, obviously. I'm, I'm just getting that. I'm doing it because I really enjoy it. And the same with and this latest book will be like that. It'll be even more honest than we've had this conversation. There'll be even more stuff in there. But the idea isn't to get sympathy of any form at all. It's for people to learn how to cope with the various things that have happened that I've got to in my life. The only thing I'd really like to do, though, is be on Desert Island Discs. But... Okay. <laughs> no, you can't organise that. Don't worry. No, 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 no. No listener will be able to organise that, unless we have one Cambridge-based one. We ought to do a Cambridge-based one. BBC might be listening. Yeah, we, we, could, we could do a Cambridge Tech, tech Podcast yes, one with for a, you. With you know, music. Just, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, do it that way. Yeah. So, and I think that that, you know, that is the legacy, isn't it? It's not like, you, you know, you ask people, oh, what do you want your lasting legacy to be? Yours is just how it's happened. It's mm. just evolved, hasn't it? It has. Yes, exactly. Though I have, some of it's planned. I mean, it's quite a lot of effort putting the books together. It's true. Well, and Alan helped tremendously with those, of course. But I will carry on giving while I'm still alive, basically. And I think that's that's kind of my final point. Like the sign off, um, if you like, from from me is that value you put on paying back. You know, these charities that you've worked with for you know, decades and the support that you've given, you know, it's really important that we do that, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. I mean, that's why I said, actually, you weren't there, but I said at the acceptance speech of the honorary doctorate last week was exactly that, trying to inspire in some way, other than 300 graduates in front of me who just graduated, and their parents, of course, as well, was uh, one of the things of my seven points, find a way of helping a social enterprise or a charity in a local community, because A, you'll learn from it, and B, it's a way of giving something back. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Your support of the Bradfield has always been very much appreciated right from day one. So it's been a really, really interesting conversation. I'm sure people get a lot from it. Yeah, thank you very much, Faye and James. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Today's episode was certainly the most personal interview that we, we've done to date. The conversation was challenging at the beginning. Um, and I, I just think, you know, huge respect to Peter for speaking so openly about those topics, um, which can really only do good. Peter's credibility in the Cambridge tech communities, you know, is clear for everyone to see with his experiences. But as you say, Faye, that conversation was so much more than just talking about how to help startups grow, which I think is important. Maybe gives us an opportunity to talk to other guests, you know, in, in similar challenging topics. Let's see. But Peter's quite unique, I think, in terms of just how open he is. So for anyone listening that wants to learn more about Peter's work, visit petercowley.org. Two quick updates in the news this week from two of our large companies here in Cambridge, Arm and Bango. Cambridge Superchip architect Arm has forged a dream team of global academic and tech influencers to ensure the semiconductor industry recruits enough highly skilled workers to enhance growth and innovation in the sector and maximise tens of billions of dollars of investment. And you'll all know that recruitment features heavily on Cambridge Tech Podcast. Arm have jointly launched the Semiconductor Education Alliance with no less than 14 partners from universities in the UK, Spain, India and America. In fact, there's actually so many to mention that we'll just put links to them in the comments pages. Their deliverables will include competency frameworks tailored to the industry needs of specific geographies and accelerated educational and training pathways, resources and services that will help to build and support future talent calls. 
In the second piece of news, Cambridge mobile commerce specialist Bango announced in a trading update that it had generated strong first half growth with revenues up 88% to $20.3 million, in line with management expectations. The Bango digital vending machine continues to drive growth in the six months to June the 30th, with ARR up 64% to 5.6 million, and it remains on track to reach its target of 10 million by the end of 2023. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. 